money is all you care about, then that's what you'll receive. Howdy. You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. Today we continue our discussion of Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, the great hero and villain of Mexico and Texas. He rose like a phoenix from the ashes of defeat many times throughout his career before his ambition overreached his usefulness. But first, what's your favorite thing that is no longer in Texas, but should be in Texas? Well, I mean, I think one of the most egregious and insulting things to happen was when the Houston Oilers went to Tennessee. So I'm going to pick that one. Love you, Blue. The second most egregious thing I would have to say would be one of the shining crowns of NASA's achievements, the space shuttle, which is no longer in Texas. Yeah, of course, it never actually lived in Texas, but when they retired, I think Texas should have received one of them. Absolutely. So write your local congressman and say... (laughs) Well, I'm going to keep in in theme with today's episode and say Santa Ana's wooden leg. Whoa, whoa, spoiler alert. (laughs) Sorry, sorry, sorry. Should be in Texas, though. Illinois, we're looking at you. When we left off last week, it was 1838, and Santa Ana had just returned to Mexico from defeat at the hands of the Texan rebels. The Mexican government was in chaos and in turn to an old rival to run the country, which was Brooke. The army was mutinous, and public opinion was at an all-time low. Santa Ana himself was disgraced and discredited, living in retirement at his hacienda. What happened next? will be yet another extraordinary turn of fortune for El Phoenix del Mexico. Since the 1828 Civil War that placed Vicente Guerrero in power, French business interests pursued claims against damage to their property during the conflict. In 1838, a French pastry chef claimed that his shop in Mexico City was damaged by the fighting ten years earlier. He took his claims all the way to French King Louis-Philippe, who responded by demanding 600,000 pesos as repayment from the Mexican government. France's real issue was that Mexico defaulted on several million dollars worth of loans, and Louis-Philippe, increasingly unpopular at home, wanted to collect. The pastry claims were just an excuse for France to lean on Mexico. President Antonio Bustamante refused to pay, and in response, France sent a fleet of ships to blockade Mexico. In November 1838, they bombarded the port of Veracruz. At the time, Santa Ana had been content to stay at home and stay out of politics. But when he heard cannon fire, he rushed to the field and offered his services, as it was his obligation to defend his country. Soon, he had command of the Mexican troops. In his biography of Santa Ana, historian Will Fowler says, The memory of his triumph at Tampico evidently carried more weight than his more recent defeat at San Jacinto. On December 5th, the French landed and attacked the city, or at least they raided the port. Santa Ana personally rallied his troops to counterattack, and in the fighting, cannon shrapnel struck his horse, mangling his leg. The French left, whether from defeat or because the effort was just too costly with no reward. Santa Ana's leg was amputated, and he once again heard the accolades of his country. The damage and disgrace of Texas was blotted out. The favor and adulation of the people meant that Santa Ana was suddenly a player in the country's political game once again. Despite not caring for the actual business of government, Santa Ana was a masterful politician, able to deftly leap from faction to faction by managing to appear to be above petty politics. Santa Ana's advisors created a picture of him as a simple retired soldier who wished nothing more than the good of the nation. 
Even when he was down, he was never out, and while he'd been in exile and retired, Mexico City's political establishment treated him with kid gloves. They knew his potential for influence. Now, at the height of his popularity, all sides sought his favor. Bustamante's stock was falling steadily. Under the current system, power really lay with Congress and the conservative powers, a body Santa Ana set up in 1836 to keep control of the government. Rebellions and mutinies continued to break out in the North, most notably under Santa Ana's former subordinates, Jose Antonio Mejia and Jose Urea. Bustamante recalled Santa Ana to the capital in February 1839 as interim president while he went out to battle Urea. He may have hoped to latch on to some of Santa Ana's popularity while gaining some glory of his own. Sounds like Bustamante was trying to take a play right out of Santa Ana's playbook. He said, hey, this works for Santa Ana. I'm going to try it. Unlike Bustamante, Santa Ana was a strong executive during his brief term. He settled things with France, took out loans to stabilize finances, cracked down on the opposition press, and in July took off to fight Mejia, leaving Nicolas Bravo in charge. At the time, all of this stuff that he did was unconstitutional. He just did it. He pretty much used his position to shore up his own reputation. He defeated and captured Mejia, and as he was wont to do with rebels, especially ones he felt had personally betrayed him, Santa Ana ordered them all executed. He returned to Mexico City covered in glory. Bustamante defeated Urea and was way more merciful than Santa Ana had been. Santa Ana went home again to Veracruz, citing, again, bad health. He probably wanted to avoid a confrontation, as he knew that Bustamante's days were numbered. Who knew that uh, you could call in sick as president? (laughs) (laughs) Now, however much he enjoyed campaigns and battles, and however skilled he was at political intrigue, it seems that Santa Ana was most satisfied being a haciendado, or a tenant landlord. He seemed to genuinely love lording over his vast estates. By 1842, he was probably the wealthiest man in Mexico. He owned over 400,000 acres, essentially all the land between Jalapa and Veracruz. Of course, despite his propaganda, it wasn't just hard work and shrewd investment that got him his wealth. Selling offices, military commissions, and outright influence was pretty much the standard of every government in the world at that time, and Santa Ana did plenty of that. In his book, Santa Ana, A Curse on Mexico, historian Robert Shina wrote that when Santa Ana was interim president for Bustamante in 1839, he gave out 2,000 promotions, put additional troops in Veracruz, and 100,000 pesos disappeared from the treasury. He made deals with foreign interests, and he got a taste of everything that came through his home state. I wonder how many pesos you could fit in a wooden leg. (laughs) Santa Ana also acquired land through seizing property from rebels and dissidents. He wasn't cruel or malicious about it. It was just his way. I am going to take your farm now. (laughs) Well, he was hardly alone in these practices. In her 1847 book, Mexico and Her Military Chieftains, writer Faye Robinson compared the Caldeos to English lords during the Tudor period, masters of their fiefdoms who couldn't, quote, be estimated by the rules which we apply to the present history of the civilized world. Santa Ana's life at home in Veracruz contrasts so greatly with the image we have of him, both as a dashing military and political leader and cruel dictator, but it does give us keen insight on what really made the man tick. He was determined to have peace, prosperity, and security for his home, his family, and his patronage, and would do whatever it takes to both ensure that peace and increase his patronage. Whatever the case, Mexico wasn't done with Santa Ana. In July 1840, he was called back to rescue Bustamante from a new coup, this time under his old vice president, Gomez Farias. 
he didn't get very far before the revolt was put down and he returned home. In 1841, Bustamante finally lost all his support among the centralists, and in August, Generals Mariano Paredes in Jalisco, Gabriel Valencia in Mexico City, and Santa Ana and Veracruz all took up the call of revolt against Bustamante. After some fighting, in October, Bustamante stepped down and the conservative council was dissolved. Congress voted to offer Santa Ana near-absolute power to restore order. This term ended up being his most successful, but it was also controversial. Santa Ana actually served and governed for an entire year. There was opposition from both liberals and conservatives, but he largely created a successful government without the endless coups. He often did this by co-opting and converting leaders who might have wanted to oppose him to his side in the guise of reform. He also made it a habit of retiring to Veracruz and appointing an interim whenever unpopular actions had to be handled, such as at the end of 1842 when he appointed Nicolas Bravo in order to dissolve a Congress that had just been filled with liberal federalists. Santa Ana came back after Bravo appointed hand-picked Santanistas and he set about directing the draft of a new constitution in July 1843. He retired again in November and he left a crony, Valentin Canalizo, in charge. How... I just want to interject and say that it would be pretty cool to have a whole group of people that are named after you. Rise up, Scott Tanistos. I just like the idea of, yeah, Nicholas Bravo sounds like something out of a James Bond novel. Like, Well, and Nicholas <laughs> Bravo, yeah, and Bravo had fought him before and would fight him later. But he turned to Bravo and said, I want you to come in and be president because I'm not feeling well. Oh, and by the way, fire all of Congress. <laughs> I'll Here's be, who I want you to appoint in their place. I'll be on my hammock. <laughs> During his time from 1841 to 1844, Santa Ana's self-promotion and propaganda veered into outright egotism. His supporters were always quick with the platitudes, but now his nicknames included the Liberator of Veracruz, the Founder of the Republic, the Defender of Tampico and Veracruz, the Napoleon of the West, and the Phoenix of Mexico. His personal behavior became more eccentric and imperious. He insisted on being called Your Excellency, and he often irritated people with his pompous and arrogant behavior. A cult of personality grew around Santa Ana. His mangled and amputated leg was dug up and moved to Mexico City, where it was buried with full military honors. A grand theater was built in the capital, El Gran Teatro de Santa Ana, and a magnificent statue of him was erected there. It displayed Santa Ana in heroic pose, pointing his finger towards Texas, which he vowed repeatedly to reconquer. Good luck with that, buddy. And this is where he loses me. <laughs> <laughs> so Texas was a major source of irritation for Santa Ana. Uh, it was where he saw his greatest defeat, and the young republic meddled in Mexican affairs, such as the Santa Fe Expedition and the Republic of the Rio Grande. In 1842, he sent two elaborate raids into Texas, each of which briefly captured San Antonio. Texas responded with a failed counter-invasion, the Mir Expedition, with hundreds of Texans captured. Again, Santa Ana's complex character comes out. He freed the son of a doctor who treated him kindly as a prisoner back in Texas in 1836, and he adopted a brave young prisoner named John Hill. On the other hand, he ordered that one in ten men be executed, the famous Black Bean Incident, and the others were subjected to years of harsh prison labor, Texas remained out of reach for Santa Ana, though, a costly failure. Ultimately, high taxes, corruption, and the general's own personality turned the country against Santa Ana. His wife Inez died in 1844, and he quickly remarried, this time to 16-year-old Maria Dolores de Tosta. He was 50 years old, and the marriage was unpopular. 
Revolts broke out in Guadalajara under Paredes and in the Mexico City barracks under Bravo in December 1844. When Santa Ana took to the field to put them down, Congress refused to grant him authority as commander-in-chief. The state stopped cooperating, and his army fell apart. Too many former allies turned against him, and in January 1845, Santa Ana knew he couldn't win. He was captured and imprisoned before being forced into exile in Cuba. All of Santa Ana's vast possessions were confiscated. Of course, the timing couldn't have been worse for Mexico. Tensions were heating up with the United States as it prepared to annex Texas. The conservatives in control were still fighting the liberals, and there was no sense of unity in Mexico. The presidency changed hands four times in 1846 alone. Fighting broke out that April in South Texas, and war was declared by the United States. Santa Ana wrote to Mexico City offering his services. The conservatives initially rejected him, but the liberals supported him. While he was in Cuba, he tried to make a deal with the United States to avoid war, offering to negotiate peace for a price. If money is all you care about, then that's what you'll receive. So now he's Han Solo, too. The war quickly turned against Mexico, and the Federalists under Farias were able to take power again. They invited Santa Ana back to Mexico, who managed to use his contacts with the United States government to get past the U.S. Navy blockade. He traveled under the guise of negotiating peace. Before going home, he promised not to get involved in politics again, but of course as soon as he got there, he reneged on both promises, and after taking control of the army in September, got elected president again in December. True to form, Santa Ana appointed Farias to run the government and took to the field against the Americans in northern Mexico. And you can take that to the bank. <laughs> yep. Yes, I will not get involved in politics, and I will negotiate a peace. Yes, I will take the army, and yes, I will be president. There you go. <laughs> That's his MO. Yep. <laughs> and yes, I will put this guy I fired three times before and back in charge. Because he is easy to control. He is easy to control. Santa Ana fought General Zachary Taylor and nearly won the Battle of Buena Vista in February 1847, but he couldn't budge Taylor from his position. He retired south and learned that things had fallen apart yet again in the capital. He removed Farias from power, I wonder when that happened before, and he appointed another acting president and he took the field immediately to fight the American invasion of the south. General Winfield Scott had taken Veracruz in March and was advancing towards Mexico City. Santa Ana fought Scott's advance at nearly every chance, but he was continually defeated. He also tried to negotiate a secret peace with Scott, but he was unable to do so, and the fighting continued. On September 13, 1847, the Americans captured Mexico City. Santa Ana retreated to Puebla to keep fighting, but the government was done. On October 7th, he was removed from command. Barely fleeing a group of Texas Rangers who were trying to capture him and kill him, Santa Ana fled into exile again, this time to Jamaica. His artificial leg wasn't so lucky. It was captured by a group of Illinois volunteers who seized his carriage. Today, it's on display in the Illinois State House, despite many requests from the state of Texas to have it sent to Texas. Yeah. It belongs in a museum <laughs> in Texas. <laughs> in the end, Mexico and the United States negotiated peace with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in March 1848, which gave the U.S. control of Texas, as well as California, New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, Colorado, and Nevada, over a third of Mexico. The war left Mexico in ruins, humiliated and shattered. In the years afterward, political infighting continued, just making things worse. As the political chaos continued, thoughts again turned to the founder of the republic, as Santa Ana was known. 
His supporters formed the Santanista Party, which was mostly conservative but included moderates and reformers. They called for national unity and for Santa Ana to come home to restore order. Between January and February of 1853, Mexico saw three presidents, the last of whom invited Santa Ana to return and become dictator. There was no pretense this time to constitutionality. Santa Ana assumed almost royal powers this time around. He took the title of His Serene Highness and had the longest period of continuous power. This dictatorship wasn't enlightened. It was absolute. Dissent was crushed. Graft and corruption became the norm, and Santa Ana was really the only one who prospered. He negotiated the sale of almost 30,000 square miles of land in what is now southern Arizona to the United States, which was hugely unpopular, especially since he pocketed or misspent most of the money from the sale. By 1855, even his conservative supporters were fed up and joined with the liberals to drive him out of the country and into exile all over again. Over the next few years, Santa Ana lived in Cuba, the United States, Colombia, and St. Thomas. Conflict continued in Mexico between the liberals and conservatives, and civil war raged between 1858 and 1861. This war even saw two different governments trying to run the country, but in the end, liberal Benito Juarez won the war. At no point during that time was there any movement to bring back Santa Ana. What? It, it appears the shine may have uh, worn off by this point. <laughs> yeah, I think that's kind of our The honeymoon theme. is over. Yeah. Juarez's radical liberal government led the conservatives, yet again, to take desperate measures to oppose him. France, Spain, and Great Britain were concerned that their interests in Mexico were being systematically expelled by Juarez's reforms. In 1862... Juarez stopped paying Mexico's foreign debt, and France invaded. The government was forced to flee. In 1863, the conservatives, seeking favor with the French, consented to a plan to create a Mexican monarchy. They offered the crown to the brother of the Austrian emperor, who became Emperor Maximilian I of Mexico. Santa Ana looked on all of this as yet another chance to restore his fortunes. He wrote to Maximilian in 1861, offering his services if Maximilian did become emperor, probably thinking that he'd just play both sides like he always did. In 1864, he returned to Veracruz to support the empire, but Maximilian wanted nothing to do with him and ordered him back into exile. Two years later, Santa Ana tried to convince the United States government that he could overthrow the empire. They didn't bite, but he deluded himself into thinking that he had their support. He tried to return to Veracruz in 1867 to join the revolutionaries, but they neither wanted nor needed him. The French withdrew, and Maximilian and his family were captured and executed. Santa Anna sailed for the Yucatan, where he was arrested and put on trial for treason. All of the sins of his past were put forward in the trial, but to his credit, Santa Anna put up an eloquent defense. He claimed all he did, he did for his country, and blamed his many failings on others. He didn't lose Texas, Filisola did. He didn't lose California, the government prevented him from continuing the fight. There was no justice in accusations of treason against the only Caldillo who fought resolved from one end of the Republic to the other, sacrificing everything. Despite his defense, Santa Ana was found guilty and was exiled again. This time, it was for eight years. Those years were long for both Santa Ana and Mexico. The interminable struggle for political control continued. Juarez died in 1872, and his successors continued fighting his great rival, General Porforio Diaz. Santa Ana drifted between Havana, New York, and Jamaica, lived mostly in poverty, and worked on his memoir. In 1869, he was living in Staten Island, New York, and sold a ton of a Central American resin called 
chicle to his secretary, Thomas Adams. Adams tried to market it as a replacement for the rubber coating on carriage wheels, but that failed. However, he'd noticed Santa Anna chewing bits of the resin, a habit he'd picked up decades before in Yucatan. Adams founded a confection company to market the resin, and chiclets were born. So Santa Anna invented chewing gum. <laughs> Just so you know. It's a good footnote. It's a le- Look, it's a good legacy. Yeah, it's, it's one positive legacy. Uh, in 1874, Santa Anna quietly made his return to Veracruz, amnesty finally being extended to him. Crippled and almost blind, he arrived recognized by no one. He went straight to Mexico City, and a few days later met with the president to seek a restoration of his pension, which was politely denied. He lived the next two years in poverty and obscurity with relatives, and died in his sleep on June 21, 1876. Mexico City's newspapers gave the event little notice. One obituary stated, however he may have been condemned by parties, his career formed a brilliant and important portion of the history of Mexico, and future historians will differ in their judgment of his merits. General Santa Anna outlived his usefulness and ambition and died at the ripe age of 82. Peace to his ashes. A few months later, Porforio Diaz consolidated a conservative dictatorship that dominated the remainder of the century far beyond anything Santa Anna ever did in his time. Today, there are no public memorials to Santa Anna. Not a single town or street or plaza is named after him. Outside of a few portraits in the National Galleries, all of his positive contributions to history have been erased, as if they were never there. Well, you know, I love a happy ending. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a sad end to to this guy. And, you know, we, we talked in the previous episode just a bit about, you know, how you kind of... He's just that he was a he was a real comeback kid for the first part of his career, but you know in his second part he just he never yeah well I mean he never I, gave up he had a lot of ambition and I, and I think it shows that those qualities that were admirable in him you know early on his uh, his drive and his desire to never give up he always came back he kept trying failed him in the end because he didn't realize when it was time to stop pushing so hard and to stop feeling acting like he was the one that could save. Mexico. Right. And, yeah, and he it was really a, a measure of diminishing returns with him because you know, he came back and came back and came back and each time he seemed to get a little further away from that original ideal of what he wanted to portray. Yeah, it's like he was at one point he was, you know, he said he was doing everything for the country and then what was the the name that he gave himself oh, his when he became supreme emperor? His, 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 no, supreme excellency. Supreme or, Highness. Yeah, he, supreme he, he, he took his he basically, supreme highness. <laughs> he took an imperial form towards at the end in his last dictatorship. Yeah. The big source of this material was historian Will Fowler's Santa Ana of Mexico and it was written in 2006 and it was it started with that trial. Uh, mm-hmm. in in 1870, 1860, whatever it was. It started with the trial, uh, and it went into detail of his really, very eloquent defense of himself, but even it was so self-serving and <laughs> ridiculous. He was very lucky to get off. They wanted to hang him or shoot him, and he was lucky to get off with exile. Well, exile doesn't seem all that terrible. It's right. just like you can't, you, you're kicked out of your country, but you're not, in a prison or anything. Right. You're but, just... right. But for someone who derives their entire identity, it seems from his contributions to the country and his, mm-hmm. his lands that he lorded over in Veracruz, that 
exile could be you know oh, considered worse. But he lived to fight another day. That and and the right. first... well, and and that's I'm sure that's what he was thinking. Is like, well, I'm exiled. I'll just come back in a few years and do it all over again. Well, in his first his first couple of exiles, he actually lived in great comfort because he took a lot of his money with him. Right, and he was supported by 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 people, and he lived in comfort. Uh, the last exile, he lived in poverty, but in the first couple, lived in comfort, so he could have stayed. How does this guy keep keep coming back? Like that's the because thing. I was, it shocks me reading the stories. Like, how does he just magically? Like, he really is a phoenix. Like, how does he magically come back from? He every had a natural. Shutdown? Yeah, he had a natural m uh, a natural uh, capability of of finding that that chink in in the armor of whatever opposition was there to him of 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 weaseling his way back in of, of charming his way back in to good graces. It just failed him in the end because again, by the time he was in his fifties and sixties and seventies, he, he, the times had passed him really. Um, the other thing was, whereas was a determined opponent of him and Diaz was as well. So those things worked against him, but back to Fowler's book, that's really where you, he did a really good job of showing there is no memorial to this person. There is mm-hmm. no positive legacy that he's left. If you look at some of the other books, like the other book I mentioned, the title is Santa Ana, A Curse on Mexico. <laughs> well, you not, know, not, not, a, not a flattering view. No. And, and other ones is like the Phoenix of Mexico, Mexico's worst president, things like that. And so that's, that's the legacy that he's, he's wound but, up with. And he really, he made his bed. He really did make yeah, his bed. I mean, he, he did earn he did earn that. He, 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 he earned, earned it. He earned it, but it's, you know, just what we have a lot of standing memorials, especially in Texas, even I, you know, it, I was just at the University of Texas last week and I saw there's a big statue of uh, Robert E. Lee and then there's a big statue of like Jefferson Davis right there, right on <laughs> campus. And I'm like, but there's no, you know, we have, and we have, you know, a Statue of Liberty sized statues of, of Austin and Houston. But there's no statues of, of Santa Ana anywhere. Like, like there's no, like, not that those yeah. guys are on the same caliber, but I'm just saying, like, he was a president and yeah. a dictator for so long. I mean, there was a statue, but it was clearly destroyed. Yeah, and to circle it back, I think, to Texas is that it seems like his strongest influence and his strongest legacy really is maintained by Texas. He's sort of just forgotten in Mexico. He's, he's remembered as the guy who lost Texas. Basically, yeah. that's really in Mexico what he's most remembered as is the guy who lost Texas and the guy who lost the Mexican American War. Although he didn't actually lose it, he was one of the better generals fighting, but for Mexico. But in the end, he's just remembered as mostly as the guy who lost Texas. I think that's an ironic well, position to have is we maintain the flame of Santa Ana. Well, and it, but it, <laughs> it gives us that great enemy, right? It right. gives us that great foil to say, you know, Texas overcame this great oppressor. Mm-hmm. And if, Santa Ana had dissolved into history without even a footnote, then we wouldn't have that mm-hmm. that wall to throw our greatness up I, against. I think we would, but it, let's say the, the the other scenario is what if he died as Veracruz, the French, what if he, what if that cannon shot had killed him? It didn't, it nearly did. He nearly died. Um, it, not, it, it mangled his leg, but he nearly bled to death and then he got an infection and nearly died from it. So what if he died there? He probably would have gone down as one of the great, again, one of the great martyrs of Mexican history We'd still have our villain, but he wouldn't have been forgotten. Yeah. But we well, also I mean, wouldn't have chewing gum. Yeah. <laughs> we wouldn't have had chewing gum. Chicklets. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, I mean, we talked about, you know, he came back, he left, he came back, he left, he came back, and 
you know, he just kind of, like I said in there, you know, the quote that he outlived his usefulness to Mexico. And at that point, Mexico is like, look, we're done with you. <laughs> but I think there's a thing that I picked up in reading these stories of, of Santa Ana is that he, he not only handed off power to people to do his dirty work for him, he also really, and probably not needing to, took off to the field, I think, too much. I think he, he saw himself as almost an Alexander, gloriously leading these these armies into conflict and single-handedly leading the charge to describe. He saw himself as this military mastermind. So anytime something flared up, he didn't send his brother, he didn't send his brother-in-law, he didn't send his friends. He said, you know, you do the paperwork, I'm going to war, and I'm going to go win this war for you. And And I think there's a you know, it, it builds, it's it's a tragic story as you watch this escalation of ego to where at the end he was just this raving egomaniac who, yes. who it, you know, he fell on the sword of his own hubris eventually, but it took a lifetime for it to happen. And and we talked last episode about how like he should have been considered along the lines of a, not necessarily George Washington, but maybe a, an Alexander Hamilton or, or someone like a, the, the great American leaders of the American Revolution. I think at this point, his reputation is more like that of a Benedict Arnold in that Benedict Arnold was a very talented, passionate person, but who flitted between sides and, and was opportunistic and was self-interested. And now he's a byword for treason. I think Santa Anna kind of has a similar characteristics to, to Benedict Arnold in that he was very talented and very shrewd and very smart. But in the end, like you said, his hubris and his desire for self-interest eventually outlived and overcame the good that he'd put in. Yeah. But, but it's like you said, Scott, and it's a great point. We need that foil. We need that, we need that enemy, but I think we need to, we need to understand that enemy a little bit more than just that cookie cutter. Yeah. I mean, I think it's cartoon character. It's easy to just hold him up as this evil, you know, evil, horrible person that did horrible things to Texas. But I think ultimately it leaves an even greater legacy for Texas to uh, demonstrate that Santa Ana was more than just this guy. I mean, he was so powerful and so resilient in Mexico, the fact that he was never able to come back into Texas and reclaim it for Mexico kind of makes it even better for us in a sense. You look at his history as like he clearly, he is a patriot to Mexico and he did what he felt was in the best interest of mostly Veracruz in Mexico and himself, but he, but he, he made the wrong choices. But if it wasn't for Santa Ana, the, you know, there wouldn't have been the colony the way it was in Texas. It wouldn't have primed the pump for Texas to be what it is. So he both created it and then he attempted to destroy it and he became that villain in, and, in for us. And now he's the Joker <laughs> and Texas is Batman. Maybe not. I'm Texas. That's kind of I'm Texas. No, I think you're thinking more like a Jack, the Jack Nicholson Joker. Oh, yes. yeah. You made me. I made you. <laughs> anyway. My thing about Santa Ana is he's clearly the bad guy in our story for all Texans. And yeah, he's the bad guy in the story of Texas, for sure. He definitely is. But he is so much more interesting than just being, you know, a mustache-twirling bad guy. Mm-hmm. And it, again... It goes back to the thing we've been saying about Texans. Even though Santa Ana is not a Texan, the character Texas is full of these characters of great complexity and depth and 
fascinating backstories that you just have to dig into and understand. And that's the whole point of our show is to say, is to talk about these complexities of these characters. And as we get into our Texas legends, really get into some of the really legendary people in Texas, the big names, Santa Ana is one of them. So he's, he's our infamous legend. Well, he crosses. Yeah. And as he crosses path with Sam Houston, he crosses path with Stephen he, Austin. He, he's yeah, responsible he for everybody. Yeah. He knows them all. And they're all, on a first name basis, and he's 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 right there with all of all of that at the beginning of it. And he's from good. from now on, you can all refer to me as his Serene Highness. Serene Highness. <laughs> he's he's well, most excellent. Bring me my chiclets. Well, I think and I, that. And I do want to I do want to say. So years ago, there was a TV movie about the Alamo called Thirteen Days Ago. It had a very young and very svelte Alec Baldwin as William Travis, but playing Santa Anna was. One of my very favorite actors in, in ever is Raul Julia. And at first I thought he was totally the wrong person to play that character because he was very smooth and sophisticated and suave and Raul Julia. I mean, that, that character. But in reading about this character, the real Santa Ana, I realize now that my understanding of Santa Ana was very immature at the time. Now I think he's probably the best Santa Ana of any of the movies because he had the most depth of character in that movie. Oh. So. If well, you can find that movie, and I think you can find it on, well, you can definitely find it on YouTube. So you can find it on YouTube. Go watch it. It's a great movie. I was going to say my the number two Santa Ana for me would have been from uh, last year's Drunk History episode of The Alamo with <laughs> yes. Horatio Sands. Yes, I think he's, he's, a, he's a close number two. Close to Relio Julia. Not quite, but close there. No, I was going to say I love Drunk History. Yeah, we'd love to talk to you guys. At Texas Podcast. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave us some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. You can follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. If you like the show, tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes. That really helps us out. It gets us noticed, and it reaches new listeners just like you. We hope you'll join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas Texas wants you anyway. anyway.